Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ten years ago today. Good morning. After hearing from over 250 witnesses and reviewing over a million pages of evidence, the barrister, Robert Francis, sat behind a desk in a hall in Westminster addressing a press conference. This is a story of appalling and unnecessary suffering of hundreds of people. They were failed by a system which ignored the warning signs and put corporate self-interest and cost control ahead of patients and their safety. Robert Francis had been leading the inquiry into Stafford Hospital, run by Mid-Staffordshire NHS Trust. It was one of the worst NHS scandals in history, and we were told it would never be allowed to happen again. But a decade on, Sir Robert is worried the health service is falling apart. The system is collapsing around our ears. There's this sort of sense that people are dying out there. I think about it virtually all the time. What can be done? The founder of the NHS, Nye Bevan, said if a bedpan was dropped in a hospital corridor in his South Wales constituency, the reverberations should echo around Whitehall. But mid-staffs took years to come to light. With the NHS under huge pressure, can we be sure the same thing couldn't happen again? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the scandal that shook the NHS. I'm Sean Linton, health editor at The Sunday Times. Our story starts six years before that press conference in Westminster. It begins in 2007 at the Staffordshire offices of the regional newspaper The Express and Star. I have very fond memories of being a a young reporter on The Express and Star. I was doing all the traditional jobs of a young journalist, the 
church fates and the dog shows and the crown court trials and everything in between really and that's where in all honesty my career took a major turning point. Doing local papers, that is part of the apprenticeship for a lot of news reporters, but yours really was quite remarkable. Tell us what happened. There was a family that had concerns about the care of their mother, Bella Bailey, in the local hospital. I called them and just spoke to them briefly. Bella was in her late 80s when she went into Stafford Hospital and she had an operation to treat a hernia. While she was in there, Julie Bailey, her daughter, visiting her mother, she saw other patients on the ward who were crying out in pain, walking around in distress, not getting the treatment she felt they needed. She was very concerned about her own mother, and Bella had said to Julie that she was scared herself. There was one particular incident where a healthcare assistant dropped Bella as she was trying to get her into bed. Ultimately, she deteriorated from that point on, really. The family feel very much that her death was contributed to by the neglect and poor care that was going on on the ward. Julie was concerned about what she herself witnessed in Stafford Hospital. She just wanted to understand what other people's experiences were. And we wrote this story, and you know, this was a small credit card sized story on a very big page with lots of other news stories. What we weren't prepared for was the sudden outpouring from other families. Very quickly, it became obvious this was more than just a family complaining, that there were many other families with similar horrific stories. What were you hearing? Undoubtedly, people died at Midstaffs as a result of poor care. But not only did people die, people were neglected, and, and those who survived still had a terrible experience. People were contacting us saying that their elderly mother had been left lying in her own urine for hours. One family who I interviewed described the last memories they had was of cleaning feces from her, her mother's hands. Oh, God. Um, because they, they'd found her mother was covered in, in this in a side room. People were not being fed. There was some horrendous evidence of patients losing awful amounts of weight and that nurses were callous and cruel in their treatment of these elderly patients. In some cases, there were stories of, of young patients, young people who had gone to the accident and emergency department and died later. It had a very traumatising effect on these families, and that's true of hundreds of families in Midstaffs. And I think that's the... The issue that people need to realise is this was a scandal that affected hundreds of people, potentially even thousands of people over many years. It's quite incredible that this can happen inside an NHS hospital. And the concerns were across the board. So uh, not just one ward, not one department. And that's the thing about Midstaffs, and I think that's why it became, you know, what people would refer to as the worst care scandal in NHS history, because it was across multiple wards 
including the general surgery department, which was described at one stage as frankly dangerous. There was the A&E department, which was described by an A&E doctor there as immune to the sound of pain. So that, yeah, there were some I mean, real that's a horrific... horrifying description. Indeed, that, that one has stayed with me for years since. That was, that was evidence given to the public inquiry by an A&E doctor. So these kinds of stories we were just picking up all the time. And every time you would do a story, it would beget another story and another family would contact you. And eventually that culminated in, you know, a campaign group of families. They coalesced around Julie Bailey and some core families in Stafford who I'm still in touch with today. And they then began a, a campaign for an inquiry and and they were successful. And I think, you know, anybody listening will feel for those families because there's nothing more horrifying than thinking, you know, your loved ones, it's not just that they're not getting the care that they need. It's the idea that some of their last memories will be of, you know, as you described, stories about neglect, just horrifying examples. I think for me, what was really transformative for me as an individual and as a journalist was sitting with these relatives in their own homes, interviewing them for hours, really, and hearing the the trauma that they lived through and seeing them upset. You know, I haven't forgotten that. You can imagine. Did you visit the hospital itself? I did, yes. I interviewed some senior officials at the hospital and and it was interesting. The initial responses to some of the concerns were really quite dismissive. You know, there was a particular interview with the then chief executive, Martin Yates, where he looked me in the eye and pretty much said everything was sorted now. Years later, we find out that almost on the day that he gave me that interview, that hospital had been written to by regulators saying the A&E department was dangerous. And they were being effectively threatened with closing the A&E department, which is a huge step. And the trust wasn't being honest about the challenges that it was facing. I mean, when you went and visited the hospital, was it obvious? You know, when you walk in, were there signs that this wasn't like every other NHS hospital? Well, I think what's interesting about Midstaffs is that, you know, I wasn't allowed onto the wards. We weren't allowed to wander around the hospital and speak to staff. Uh, you know, and a lot of staff spoke to us anonymously and would contact us privately, but we weren't able to see the care that was being delivered to patients. But I think what struck me was some of the inspections that went on later during the public inquiry. It was said very often that these problems were evident to anyone who walked onto the wards. You, you could literally smell them. And all the executives, all the people who are responsible for checking the welfare of patients, how come no one raised the alarm? How come this wasn't picked up? I think most people listening will wonder what on earth was happening with management. How do you miss so many signs? How do you miss so many extra deaths? What do we think was going on? So in the lead up to Bella Bailey's death, for example, in 2007, what, what were hospital management doing? What were they sort of preoccupied with? How were they missing this? One of the things we know happened was that in 2006, the NHS was under incredible financial pressure and the health secretary at the time, Patricia Hewitt, had effectively told the NHS to balance the books in whatever way it could. Hi, I'm Patricia Hewitt. I'm Labour's Secretary of State for Health. And I have to say, I cannot think of a more wonderful job to be doing. Huge improvements, but also huge changes. Real problems, I know, as we sort out the finances and we didn't have a choice about that. 
given the overspending of a year or so ago. But the staff have been extraordinary. Midstaffs was told that effectively it had to save £10 million a year. And one of the ways that the trust did that was to get rid of well in excess of 150 nurses. So there was less staff on the wards. They were being stretched in a way that was just unsafe. The hospital had reorganised the way care was being delivered in a way that other hospitals have never done before, mixing patients in different wards. So there was not really specialty care on the wards by nurses. You know, stroke nurses were looking after gastroenterology patients and, and vice versa. But bigger than that, there was a cultural problem at this trust. It was insular. Some people had been there for many decades and a toxic culture had developed and a culture where whistleblowing and speaking up about concerns was, not only was it not encouraged, it was actively discouraged and, and people were targeted. You know, yeah. there are stories of nurses who tried to raise the alarm, who were threatened. One nurse, in particular, Helen Donnelly in the a &E department, she talked at the inquiry about being scared to walk to her car at night after she'd raised concerns. So that, you know, those... Wow, so actual sort of... Or a threat to... Staff were threatened, absolutely, and doctors as well. But, you know, Stafford wasn't an island. And so this is the other issue about Midstaff and why it's a national scandal. It was because it, it was a hospital operating in a system. So not only were there financial pressure, there was political pressure on the trust to meet targets and also to become what was called a foundation trust. This was the new approach to trust management and greater independence for individual NHS trust that was the big idea of new labour at the time. And there was huge pressure right the way from number 10 to get more hospitals to become foundation trusts. How did that impact the way they ran? So part of the way you become a foundation trust was to demonstrate your excellence with finances and targets and meeting these metrics. But they had very little patient safety and quality outcome metrics in there. That was a huge factor. So yeah. you add all those together and it was really a toxic cocktail. And in terms of the targets, I can understand that management are obsessed with financial targets. That's what they've been told they'll be judged on. At the same time, you'd think somebody somewhere must have seen that the death rate was going up, that more people who should have been able to walk away from hospital weren't walking away from hospital. Yeah. So we know that the local NHS was a, a little too close to the hospital, a little, a little too willing to look the other way. The regulators, the Healthcare Commission, they were ineffectual, but there were clear warning signs. And there were also warning signs from just listening to the patients. Mm. And that's what nobody was doing. And when the trust applied for foundation trust status, the national bodies that made that call, they were under pressure from the Department for Health and Number 10, and they didn't ask questions about quality of care. That wasn't their primary goal. You mentioned the warnings. Obviously, there were the stories that you were hearing from patients. But before that, I mean, looking back on it now and not having investigated it, were there warnings being raised in the run-up to that moment in 2007 where you start writing about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I've always said I, I was a journalist that helped the families to expose Midstaff. So I didn't do this alone. There were other journalists that wrote about it. But there were signs there long before Bella Bailey went into hospital. And in fact, if people look back at a speech that was given at the Royal College of Nursing's Congress in 1999, there was a mention of a trust in Staffordshire, Midstaffs, that was cutting the number of nurses. 
and that this would lead to poor patient care. Back in 1999. So mid-staffs didn't just fall off a cliff suddenly in 2007. It had built up over time, but there were definite warning signs. And when your stories come out, do they have to admit that, that mistakes have been made? Well, they were very defensive, and I remember being called once by the press officer at the Trust saying that we will no longer respond to your inquiries about this case. We've said all we want to say, that's it. Which is, yeah, I don't very often get that kind of response from an NHS Trust. But actually, when, when the scandal really broke and the regulators were suddenly saying there's a real issue here, the chairman left and the chief executive, Martin Yates, was suspended and resigned, and he never gave an interview. He never spoke from that moment. He just disappeared. He gave a statement to the public inquiry years later, which was very critical of the pressure he'd faced from the media and all all of that sort of, you know, typical defensive approach again. And I think a lot of the board have to carry the can for the way they led the organisation at that point. So you tried to get answers from the hospital. The first CEO seems to be burying his head. Does that change? It does. The NHS brought in a a new chief executive, Anthony Samara, to turn this hospital around. I met him first to do a sort of big introductory interview for the newspaper, you know, went into the hospital offices and I remember him being a a very tall man. I'm not particularly tall and he towered over me and I thought, what am I going to get here? Is it going to be the standard NHS management speak? shook his hand and I asked him just straight off the bat, you know, so, okay, what's the situation here? Where are we? And to his credit, having taken a proper look at things, he was very honest. And he looked me in the eye and he said, we're still fucking killing people. Coming up, how the Midstaff scandal brought down the head of the NHS. That's in just a moment. I'm Oliver Wright, policy editor at The Times. My job is to try and explain what's going on in Westminster, what the government's doing, what the government's not doing, and why it matters to all of us. But we can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash Stories of Our Times. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. By 2009, Midstaffs was all over the news. Feeling the pressure, the NHS sent in a trusted troubleshooter, Anthony Samara, to sort out the hospital as its new chief executive. He said, we have a lot of problems, and he won the confidence of families by being so candid. Uh, Anthony, how would you describe your management and leadership style during your time at Midstaffs? Very value-driven, very blunt, and sometimes rude in that's, I think, sometimes described as a sort of management version of Tourette syndrome. <laughs> and did you need to change that, or did, did you find that? It. I find it difficult to change it, to be honest. Anthony Samara had a very difficult time at Midstaffs. He had to make some really uncomfortable decisions, dealing with some of the internal staff problems, but he also had to make decisions about tackling the surgery department, A&E department, which closed overnight at one stage for safety reasons. You know, he had a real difficult time actually running that place. It wasn't easy, but he approached it with an aspect of being super honest. And, you know, by that stage, there wasn't much that he had to lose, really. The, the hospital was probably at that stage the worst hospital in the country. So he took the approach of let's take the lid off it. And what was inside was pretty awful. I very much went into the public inquiry thinking, well, we know everything now. And actually, we learned incredible things. Well, tell us a bit about that, because, you know, it, it became a huge national scandal. There was a big public inquiry. It went on for 139 days. You wrote about it all the way through. You were there. What was it like? It was a strange experience in one sense, because the families were there every day. I was there most days. I think I missed a week. Um, and there was a a chap there uh, who used to count the number of times people had used the word hindsight during the inquiry yeah. and he had a running total. It was all sort of, you know, jovial at times, but then equally, you know, there were other occasions when it was incredibly somber. The things that were heard, as I said, you know, junior doctors describing A&E department as immune to the sound of pain and families were asked to recount their experiences on the witness stand. You know, that it was a... It was a difficult experience. And in many ways, I, I feel fortunate to have been able to sit through an inquiry like that. I'm not sure many local newspapers would be able to do that now, but it stayed with me. What, what are the memories that you still think of now? Well, I remember the family of one young man, John Moore Robinson, who died. Uh, having gone to A&E, he had a, a bike accident and he'd gone over the handlebars and injured himself quite badly. And he was sent away from the A&E department with very basic advice and some paracetamol and sadly died later from a ruptured spleen. And his parents fought an incredible battle to get to the truth and really exposed the failures at the top and how people had intervened to get reports altered and changed over their son's death. And when they gave evidence, it was incredibly powerful you could hear a pin drop and you know there were moments when emails were shown on screen making it quite clear that the government wanted foundation trusts at any cost and 
those kinds of moments were just really, you know, you could see why this scandal had happened. Was the government in the dock as much as the hospital was? Very much so. You know, the public inquiry was about how the system had failed to spot this scandal. And one example from the inquiry that I remember very strongly was talking about the general surgery department there. And I suddenly perked up and was listening to what was being said because I remember trying to get hold of a Royal College of Surgeons report into Stafford's surgery department around 2009, and we just couldn't get it. And then fast forward to the public inquiry, and it's referenced in an evidence session. And I knew because I I was sitting there with a copy of the Public Inquiries Act that if evidence was referenced that the inquiry oh. held, then you could request that as a journalist. And so I I they ran straight to the, again. exactly. So I ran straight to the press team at the inquiry and said, you know, I want to see this report. I want copies of this. And they said, you can't have it. And I said, I can. And I waved the legislation in front of them and said, look here. And that day they handed it over. It was just astonishing that the the general surgery department there, I think the Royal College of Surgeons said it was unsafe, inadequate, and at times, frankly, dangerous. And they recommended psychologists being brought in to work with the surgeons. Psychologists? Uh, the, the, sur- the surgeons were falling out. The nurses were terrified. It was It was so toxic. And they went through case studies of people who died. You can imagine if that had come out in 2009... I think the fight for a public inquiry would have been sped up quite considerably. It was a damning piece of evidence. And, you know, it would have sped up the public inquiry, but also people were still dying. And the, the idea that you have a level of dysfunction that requires psychologists to come in and talk to surgeons, I mean, that's genuinely alarming. Well, what's concerning is we know that that report effectively went into a draw and wasn't particularly acted on. And the new chief executive, a few years later, said they were still having the same problems. When the inquiry finally concluded, you know, reporters published, press from around the country gathered because it's been such a big story. You were there. Tell us about how it felt. I turned up on the day a little early, feeling a little bit sick, and met the families there. And we were led into a room and locked in. I think we had maybe only half an hour before Robert Francis delivered his statement to the press pack. I want to pay tribute to the many patients and those close to them who bravely and with great dignity gave evidence to me. It is their efforts which have brought these shocking facts to light. There were lots of hugs and tears because by that stage, things had got a little bit toxic in Stafford for the families and people felt you know, wrongly, I think, that the hospital could be closed and and it it had become political as well, you know, Labour versus Conservatives. The Conservatives had called the public inquiry. Labour had been the ones in charge uh, when Midstaffs really kicked off. And so it had become a bit difficult for the families. You know, there were stories of people being spat at in the street and Julie was threatened. And reading the report that day, it was a full vindication of everything they'd said. What brought about this awful state of affairs? The Trust Board was weak. It didn't tackle the tolerance of poor standards and the disengagement of senior clinical staff from managerial and leadership responsibilities. These failures were in part due to a focus on reaching targets, achieving financial balance and seeking Foundation Trust status at the cost of delivering acceptable standards of care. 
there was a failure of the NHS system at every level to detect and take the action patients and the public were entitled to expect. The NHS had, had veered off course and it felt like this was a moment where it was going to be pushed back where it needed to go. So that was a remarkable moment and the report came out. It vindicated everything the families had said. And, you know, as you say, there was that moment of hope that maybe this is when reform starts. Just give us a sense of what were the things they thought needed to be done. Well, there were 290 recommendations. I won't take you through all of them now, but I I think to sum them up, there was emphasis on getting away from a target-based, finance-based system and getting more back towards a system that was focused around patients, listening to patients and quality of, of care and measuring the outcomes of that. So there was a lot of emphasis on regulatory reform, bringing in new laws. So you know, we've seen very recently a hospital was prosecuted for poor maternity care. You know, those things weren't possible before. There was recommendations on safe staffing levels. The plug was pulled on that a few years later, and we still don't have proper safe staffing implemented in the NHS. And we're still awaiting a government workforce plan 10 years on. It's still Mm. being worked on. But a lot of the reforms as well were around trying to change the culture, whistleblowing protections. Not every recommendation was adopted by the government. And I think, you know, that's not necessarily wrong. You know, governments don't have to act on everything. But I think there were some notable decisions that have not, I think, stood the test of time and we're still in a difficult place now. Did it have a cultural impact on hospitals across the country? Was there a sort of a moment of, we've got to make sure we're not mid-staffs? Yeah, I think it really did, actually. And, and you know, I spend a lot of my time writing stories about how the NHS has got things wrong. But I have to say, the way we talk about patient safety has changed in the NHS. Nobody wants to be the next mid-staffs. People still reference that. They still it, talk about it. They still talk about mid-staffs in the NHS. There was a huge emphasis to look at death rates, mortality, staffing levels. We've seen record levels of nurses recruited to the NHS immediately after the inquiry was published. And that's carried on almost for a decade since. We still don't have enough, but at least we're recruiting them. But I do worry that we're beginning to forget some of the lessons of mid-staffs, and that worries me. Did the final report, did it actually pin the blame on anyone in particular? Well, that's an interesting question because it didn't lay the blame on any one individual. And there were lots of arguments about that. Families certainly felt that certain people should be named and shamed. But Robert Francis aimed not to do that. He, I think he recognised this was a systemic issue and you're not going to fix that by creating a villain. Mm. But that isn't to say villains weren't created. I mean, the media certainly highlighted Sir David Nicholson, the then chief executive of NHS England, the Daily Mail called him the man with no shame. And it it did ultimately, I think, contribute to him resigning. Just explain how that happened. Why, why did it go from the hospital to him? Well, it wasn't just because he was the chief executive of the NHS across England. It was also because earlier in his career, he was responsible for overseeing mid-staffs at the, in the local health authority region. And you know, there were, there were arguments about this at the inquiry, but the suggestion had been that it was him and that authority that had put pressure on mid-staffs to cut the £10 million in 2006 and to basically cut the number of nurses. Now, they would argue that the, the trust made that decision, but the pressure certainly came from above. Mm. That meant, I think, he became a figure that many of the families 
blame. But it, I have to say, you know, there's much criticism you can make of Sir David. He's accepted, I think, in the years since that mistakes were made over midstaffs. But you can't lay it all on one person. Yeah. And I think the lesson of midstaffs is it was a cultural, systemic failing. It's been 10 years now since the inquiry ended. You've actually kept in touch with Sir Robert Francis, who chaired it. And he doesn't often talk to the media, he doesn't often do interviews, but he has spoken to you. When did we first meet at that uh, rather strange motel? In, uh, How was that? Yeah. In, in, yes. And then hanging outside the... the... In the snow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think yeah. I've still got the frostbite. <laughs> Robert is a, a real gentleman and a very experienced barrister. You know, I've known him for a long time. It would be a good idea in the context of where we are now to mm. take a, yeah. a slight look back and ask the question, is the NHS mm. safer, better? So who better to talk to? Yeah. He has, in the same way as myself, been affected by mid-staffs. Do you think about it often? Mid-staffs, the NHS, safety, patient safety? All I mean, the time. I think about it virtually all the time and, and with a sort of sense of helplessness really what, 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 what can be done mm. and he is still contacted by staff and patients with awful stories they still see him as someone to go to when all else has failed and you know he was very clear in the interview with me for the Sunday Times he was very clear about his concern that we're sort of almost back to levels of poor care that we saw at mid-staffs but they're now happening in lots of different hospitals, and, and that's a real concern for him. There is this, and I'm sure lots of people in the system feel this too, there's this sort of sense, you know, people are dying out there, what, what can I do? Obviously I'm not a doctor, but I have a voice, and if occasionally that helps. Does he think we could have something on the scale of mid-staffs again? He certainly said to me that, you know, the current situation, people are dying, and it needs to be treated as a, a national emergency. The system is collapsing around our ears. I mean, there's still fantastic stuff going on within it. But people are waiting years for things that should be happening straight away. Cancer services are struggling. Mm. A&E, of course, is a disaster area. So what is it? what are our priorities? And that's a public conversation that needs to be had. And he has written to the health secretary saying that he fears mid-staffs is happening on a national scale which is quite something for someone like him to put pen mm. to paper like that. That's quite the warning. Mm. At the same time as he's telling you that, the government last week was announcing the largest and fastest improvement in NHS waiting times in history, we're told. What did you make of that? Is that reassuring? Well, like all government plans, the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? And one of the big gaps in the plan that's been announced is the is the workforce issue and this goes all the way back to mid-staffs we know we've got loads of shortages of doctors we've halved the number of district nurses since 2010 and yet here's a government plan saying we're going to boost community care we're going to do all of these things but they don't have the staff to deliver it now the government have promised a workforce plan 10 years after mid-staffs we might actually get one but it's not appeared yet and i think we were promised it in january and so we'll have to see what that contains and, and crucially, whether it's fully funded. You know, my fear is that the numbers that they come up with about what the NHS will need will be curtailed by the finances that we can afford. 
And if that's the case, then aren't we really just repeating what Midstaffs as a trust was doing and only, only employing what we can afford, not necessarily what the patients need? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Sunday Times health editor, Sean Linton. You can find all of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print on Sundays. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And this episode was mixed by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.